0: Hi and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host Spencer Martin, author of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. This week we are talking about the UAE Tour. A pretty boring race overall, not gonna lie, but I'll I'll pick out a few interesting parts of that, a few good bits we've had so far and what that's taught us about the season to come, as well as talking about the action-packed weekend we have coming up. I don't know who plans these races there's too many bike races let's just let's just cover that right now there's like 10 total bike races that's too many we, we got to pare this down but before we cover that you can support the podcast by signing up for the newsletter beyondthepeloton.substack.com there's a free edition comes out minimum once a week if you like the podcast that's a no brainer sign up for that right now there's also a paid edition that comes out daily during grand tours Covers every major race. Comes with discounts to brands like Stages Cycling, FastCat Coaching, and Curé of Switzerland Clothing. You can find that at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. And there's a link in the show notes. But first, the UA Tour. Going into tomorrow's final summit finish up Jebel Hafit. Tadej Pogacar leads the race. No big surprise. He won the race last year. He's probably going to win the race again this year. He leads by four seconds over Filippo Ogana. 14 seconds over Alexander Vlasov, 17 seconds over Adam Yates. It's hard to imagine any of these guys shaking him loose tomorrow. It's uh, kind of the perfect climb for for him. Yeah, it's a perfect climb for someone who's stronger than everybody else. Um, That would be any climb. It's 11K long at like 7%. It's actually really good for Ghana. If Ghana was in the race lead, I would not be shocked if he could hold it going into this, but it's just too hard to imagine him pulling time out of Pagachar. On a climb, he needs to be defending there. And Pogacar has looked really good. Um, he came into this race having had symptomatic COVID in like the weeks before it. So I thought, I wrote this now regrettable newsletter post earlier in the month of February saying that this is actually good for uh, to get value out of Pogacar's betting odds for the Tour de France because he's at a plus 100 at the time and he's going to probably perform poorly at the UA Tour. The odds for him are going to be even better. This is a great value. Um, just sit and wait and bet on Pogacar. Um, After I wrote that, I, I kind of had second-guessed it. I went and put a bunch of money on Pogacar to win the Tour de France at plus 100, and I'm glad I did because now that he's coming to the UA Tour and kind of dominated every important stage, he got fourth in the time trial, which is the same he got there last year. And what was impressive is he he didn't even ride like a particularly good time trial, it seemed like. He just kind of, you know, he's on like a super un bike. His position's not very good. I feel like he had windier conditions than Adam Yates, and he still just just blew everyone except pretty much Filippo Filippo who could compete for the GC out of the water. And sure enough, as we go into the final stage at the UA Tour, he is negative one hundred five, one hundred and five to win the Tour de France. So you know, for a stage race that you know that is crazy. It'd be even crazier for a one-day race um, with the Tour. I mean, there's really only four or five riders in the world who can win the Tour de France. So you know, assume. Tadej Pogacar is one of them, but there's so many things that can go wrong. You know, it's like, that's not easy money. You're not just automatically getting that back. Primo's Roglic is plus 200. Jonas Vindegaard's plus 600. Richard Carapaz plus 1600. Garrett Thomas plus 1800. Way overvalued. Egan Bernal plus 3300. Way overvalued. Joala made a plus 3,300. I mean, you look at that list and you think who could really win the thing, you know, and it's really just Pogacar and Roglic, you know, maybe Carapaz. If something happens to both Pogacar and Roglic and they can't finish the race, if they get a positive COVID test, they crash, um, really cut out in the crosswinds and lose like 10 minutes, you know, maybe Carapaz could win. But, you know, I don't even think Carapaz at this point is even doing it. That's what they claim. I don't know if I buy that. And that kind of takes us into the first really interesting thing I noticed about the UA Tour. Um, Ineos, everyone knows the story. Egan Bernal crashed. Was their Tour de France contender or they never, they never said that, but I just assumed that that was going to happen. He's by far their best GC rider. I assume they would, they would move Carapaz into that spot to, to have their second best GC rider going to the biggest and most important race of the season. They claim they're not doing that. That strategy made a little bit more sense after I saw the time trial, the stage three time trial where Adam Yates comes out with a brand new time trial position. I mean, this thing looks so fast, unrecognizable to his position from just, I, I believe that was five months ago, five and a half months ago at the Vuelta Espana. España. Um, clearly they they brought Dan Bingham on in the off season. I think he worked with Jumbo Visma last year. He, he has an interesting story. I'd actually love to get him on the podcast. He is an active rider himself. Like he got a pretty high place at the world championships in the time trial, but he doesn't ride professionally. He just will like moonlight on the British national team. And then his day job is an Aerodynamist, aerodynamist, aerodynamist with pro teams. He worked with Yombo Vizima last year. I mean, their time trial positions really in, improved while he was working with the team. Um, Ineos brought him over in the offseason. I'd love to know what he gets paid. I mean, whatever he's getting paid is probably not enough um, because he completely overhauled Adam Yates' position. Actually, interestingly, Filippo ogana had exactly the same position that he had last year and got beat in the time trial, probably because he wasn't quite arrow enough because Stefan Bissinger was more tucked in with his goofy, really goofy, really bad looking helmet. But the headwinds on the, after the turnaround point, maybe made the difference. So, um, clear, clearly, Ghana had not worked with Bingham because he looked exactly the same as he did the year before, but he was not as fast as someone who looks like they are working with an aerodynamist. So pretty kind of an interesting little subplot there, but Yates looked incredible. I was actually shocked at how good he looked on the time trial bike. That's always been the problem with the Yates brothers. I mean, Simon has won a grand tour, but Adam's never even been on a podium at a grand tour because outside of being he's a very good climber, but he just loses so much time in the time trials. This new setup, he wasn't, you know, he still didn't beat Tadej Pogacar, but he finished within 11 seconds of him, losing a little bit more than a second per kilometer. But he was one of the only riders to get faster. This is a pretty similar course to the course stated last year. To this year, both the winner and Tadej Pogacar went about half a kilometer slower. Adam Yates goes over half a kilometer faster, so clearly... Um, a lot of improvement there with the time trial position, and that tells me that they are serious about sending him to the Tour de France as their main GC contender. Normally, I would think that's insane because he's never finished on a Grand Tour podium. How could you really trust the guy to be your, you know, your torchbearer at a Grand Tour? Clearly, they'll, you know, it's Ineos, so they'll have like three or four other riders that maybe could fill in if he flops. But you know, that never really works. You want to send a really strong guy. Um, I, I, I should couch that. Yet I would say that never works. They did kind of send two leaders in, in 2018 and 2019 and 2018 Garrett thomas beat chris Froome to win and then 2019 egan bernal beat Garrett thomas to win so they, they have had success with like the the one two before but you know that by definition relies on having the best rider in the race which they will not have this year but after seeing this you know i i did start to think you know maybe this could work adam yates looks pretty fit he, he got dropped by Pagachar on the on the summit finish but you know, there's kind of no shame in that like who doesn't get dropped by pogaccio on summit finishes you know even staying on the same time as him is is pretty impressive that's that's a win in itself so you know i don't i, I don't love this strategy It seems weird for the richest team in the sport to be like pinning all their hopes on i'm kind of a mature writer i believe he's almost 30 years old who hasn't finished on a grand tour podium but you know, this is the position they're in, and, and they've really, I'm pretty impressed with how they've seemingly transformed him in, into a respectable time trialist. I mean, I, I cannot stress how good he looked on that time trial bike compared to how he has in years past. Um, meanwhile, Tadej Pogacar looks like, you know, if he could get an aerodynamicist, uh, my God, he would never lose another race because he looks so, he's looks wide open. I mean, he's doing a good job. Like, it's not like, Fault of Tadej Pogacar, like he's tucked in. If if I showed you this position position ten years ago, you'd think it was like the best position you'd ever seen. But but body positions on TT bikes and specifically three D printed aero bars have really changed the game. I mean, the bikes themselves are actually you hear a lot of like fluff about it. Pretty much every bike is the same. Some of them are faster than others. I know Specialized has like pretty fast time trial bike, but Ineos's Pinarellos are not particularly good. Um, but, but it's what you can do, like the accoutrement that you add on there, the wheels and the the handlebars and then specifically like the rider and the helmet are key because the UCI regulates every time tri-bike to be pretty similar. Even the worst one is not that much worse than the fastest one, um, but, but you can kind of pick around the edges and make your rider faster, faster, slower, depending on like add-ons like the helmet, the handlebars and their skin suit and their body position. Those are the really important things. It's crazy to me that there isn't even, there's even differences in skin suits now. Like just find the fastest skin suit. Like how, I don't understand how this is still like, just, okay, figure out who has the fastest skin suit, go to their provider, say, yeah, we want to buy 50 of those. I don't quite understand why that's so difficult. You know, maybe it's because teams get paid, you know, they might get paid seven figures to ride a specific clothing manufacturer and everything depends on if that clothing manufacturer wants to dump a bunch of resources into making a skin suit fast or not. So um that that's probably what the issue is there. So the next day on the first summit finish, uh Taddy Pagachar actually wins wins the race, Be- beats Adam Yates, Alexander Vlasov comes in third. They're the only three riders on like the winner's time. Um there's a larger group three seconds down that included felipe agana pretty interestingly. But one thing I noticed the thing that stuck out to me the most was just how strong UAE is. Um, they had Joao Meta like as their second to last pace setter, which is pretty impressive to have a rider of that quality doing that much work, and then still have Rafa Michael F. to work for Tade Pogacar. So that right there tells you things are going to be different in 2022 than they were last year, where and in the year before, where Pogacar was on maybe one of the weakest Grand Tour contending teams in the sport. Um, this is bad news for anyone who wants to beat Tade Pogacar. Like he now has a really legitimate team around him. So that, that stuck out to me right there. And anytime, you know, teams tried to kind of poke them, dislodge the train, they could get it back together and get it, get it going. Luke Plapp, I think believe he's the Australian Rudarist champion. He's really young, like 20 years old, already Australian Rutarist champion. Um, he attacked with half a kilometer to go. It, it initially looked like he successfully kind of blew up the UAE train, but in reality he was just kind of setting up Pagachar for the win. Uh, that attack dislodged Felipe Ogana, who was not dropped before and then actually put him out of the leader's jersey. So I thought that was an odd strategy from from Ineos. I'm not quite sure what the plan was there other than just we really don't give a shit about this race. This is a small race no one cares about in the grand scheme of things. Let's just let Luke, Luke Plapp attack. This looks good. Maybe you can put Pogacar under trouble and Adam Yates can win the race. Um, I guess that's what they're thinking. You know, maybe they think that Ghana can't hang tomorrow on the summit finish, but I'm not so sure. I mean, if, if he could hang on Jebel Jaish on stage four, that was twice as long as Jebel Hafif. So I don't know. I think if he could hang there, he can probably hang tomorrow. So, you know, if if they get, if Ghana ends up in second, we'll look back at that attack as, as their uh, you know, maybe a miss, a complete misreading of the race from them. And And then that was the other thing I noticed on the climb is just how good Ghana was. Um, you know, he, There's been Daniel Freeb on the cycling podcast, who I love, was just kind of like scoffing at the idea that Ghana could ever be a GC GC contender. Um, I'm not so sure. I mean, that's a really impressive performance. And that's his second really impressive climbing performance after the Tour de la Provence this year. You know, that tells me like, not only is Ghana good at climbing when he needs to be, but he's motivated. I mean, if he was just content on being a time trialist his whole career, he wouldn't be suffering on these summit finishes. Like, there's a plan there. He's thinking about something. I don't know if he's just working on his climbing so he can potentially win a classic like Milano-San Remo, or if he wants to transition in, into GC riding. But all I know is that when someone has an FTP, like a functional threshold power of over 500 watts, they can do pretty much anything they want in the sport, besides be a pure sprinter. Um, you know, I, I think I think people overcomplicate it. Even, even Daniel, who knows so much about the sport, was saying like oh, everyone says time trialists win Grand Tours, but that's not true because there's not that many time trials. But what is a climb, especially a Tour de France climb, these long gradual climbs, gradual is is like you know, in quotations, gradual for Europe, we should say, if not time trials, they're all like kind of just watt per kilo based time trials. And if your watts are that high, you know, you don't have to get your kilos that low to to hang with lighter riders. So I don't think it's totally ridiculous, and you know, I, I there are high-profile flameouts of this, like Rowan Dennis um, has not hasn't quite worked. There was like stories years and years where he's going to be a Grand Tour contender, but I think that was more of a of a mental thing than physical, because we we've seen him. I think he has the all-time record of the Stelvio. Like he can climb very well. Um, it's just a matter of if if you're really willing to, you know, if you really have that mindset and you want the building stress of a Grand Tour of Grand Tour leadership. Um, Another note from the climb is Tom Dumoulin got dropped really early. Um, clearly, that was not the plan. The team seemed really shocked by that. He is their GC option at the zero currently. I'm not sure what they're going to do there. I mean, the, the, the weird thing since he's come back from his like mini retirement is he's looked so good in time trials, like really good in time trials, and then he cannot climb to save his life. Um, odd, since I just mentioned that what are climbs if not time trials. You know, in theory, he looks really thin, and he's clearly putting out big power numbers. If he can time trial that well, it must just be like the base fitness isn't there, or I don't know if it's a mental thing. But you know, as, as I mentioned last week, people think the zero is is further away than it is. Like you need to be showing something in terms of form now for a team to invest in you as a as a zero Italia leader. And you know, maybe they just figure he's so talented and he's already won the race before that. You know, they, they send them with Tobias Foss as their backup and, and they roll the dice there. But there's got to be some, some questions being asked inside that team camp, inside the team about what's going on there. And if we should maybe try to change gears before the, the Giro. So then the, the two stages that have happened since then showed us, um, I, I thought, some pretty interesting racing at the, at the beginning of stage five. At the beginning of stage five, where there was crosswinds, the race blew up. Who's at the the front if not for Tadej Pogacar? The entire Ineos team is stuck behind, chasing. Um, Could have have gone really bad for them. They had Felipe Ogana who could get them back, but but Pogacar parlayed kind of the chaos of that, that he was in the front group to get second in the intermediate sprint, which increased his lead from two to four seconds, which depending on how the the final climb goes could, could be important especially if he gets dropped by Adam Yates, who is now further back from him than he was before. So, you know, you, you don't know, but I, I thought that was, uh, was pretty interesting, especially since, if you remember the 2020 Tour de France, the only time where Tadej Pogacar really lost time was the stage seven crosswinds. Um, clearly, he's worked on that. He's becoming a more well-rounded rider, which, as I mentioned with the team, is bad news for anyone who wants to beat him in a Grand Tour. He seems to just be getting better and better at the things that he was bad at before. Um, we saw him coming into the finish he flats with 6.5k to go on that same stage normally this is like a kiss of death you know it's such such high speed you're coming to a stop the peloton's ripping away from you at like 32 35 miles an hour like how can you possibly catch back on the bike change was crap it was really bad uh, you, everything was not going his way but he just stays i thought he stayed so calm i was really impressed by this i mean i know it's a nothing race it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things but the poise in which he handled that issue really stuck out to me. And and eventually he did catch back on. Where these are, you know, it's like a lot of Grand Tour contenders would panic in a moment like that, and he did not. So it shows you he's just kind of a hard guy to shake. Enios at that moment could have gone to the front. They did have two riders at the front who were looking around, wondering what to do. Um, they didn't they didn't do the nuclear option though, which would have been put gun on the front and really rip it they probably, I don't know, they probably could have kept him off the back. It's, it was not clear. I think that was the calculation they made that as long as Pogacar is still in the team car caravan, no matter how hard we're riding, like a car can go faster. So if he's drafting off cars and he has teammates with him, it it's not guaranteed that we can drop him. We're going to burn a lot of goodwill if we do that. So let's just pocket this. Let's just not pull they kind of owe us one now because we didn't take advantage of bad luck that they had in a stage race that we really don't care about winning. And we'll just take that. We'll roll that goodwill into the rest of the season. That's what I think happened there. And then today, this is like not the most exciting thing to talk about, but Gazprom stuff the breakaway. Um, that's it's kind of a bummer because they're sponsored by the Russian government. It's Gazprom is like an oil company owned by Putin, basically. So it's a bummer to see while they're invading a sovereign democracy and then not not like doesn't make you feel like you're rooting for the good guys that's for sure but i mean those it's not the writers on the team's fault so you want to try to cut them a little bit of slack but matthias vakech vavek vakech i I thought this guy wins the stage from the breakaway i thought it was super interesting how Gazprom played this they didn't even like lead them out or really even race form in the final they had two riders sprinting side by side i'm not sure i've ever seen this at least done on purpose they got one guy third to defend his sprint jersey and then vachek wins the stage fairly easily over ajay du rider but they easily could have lost this thing if if he screws up they have three riders in a group of five and they could have lost it so i was really really surprised at how casually they treated that finish um, he's only 19 years old though. So that sticks out to me. I'm just like, wow, this, this 19 year old wins from a breakaway at a race where it's really hard to win from the breakaway. Um, the only reason they won, I think is because Mark Cavendish has a concussion and quick step was not chasing in the group behind. And if you've been watching stages, please, please tell me you've not been watching stages. Um, that's what I'm here for. This is a really boring race overall. No one needs to be wasting their time watching it except for highlights. Alpha and Phoenix has been sitting like just sitting dead last, like tailgunning it basically until like 5k to go and then shooting to the front because these are like 55 lane roads. So you can move up whenever you want. And that I'm sure Gazprom has noticed that and just thought, wait, well, you could probably, you know, steal a win here at the end of a stage because there's not a ton of momentum in the group. If there's three of us in a break, you know, maybe there's only three Yumbo riders working behind who, you know, are the only sprint team working because Alpeson sitting at the back and Quickstep Um, is not sprinting today so that's exactly what happened you know it's exciting on one hand you're like wow what's the sky's the limit for this 19 year old but Gazprom's a really strange team Um, if you remember they won stage 15 at the 2016 Giro d'Italia it was an uphill time trial in the Dolomites Uh, Alexander Fovilov wins and you, you know that's shocking it's his first world tour win out of nowhere he's not won another race ever for the rest of his career And that was the last world tour race. The team has won like they'll pull off these crazy performances. And then you just, they just literally don't win for like five years. They go into a five-year hibernation. So that's the only thing where I'm wondering, like, what is like, who knows, who knows how this is happening? You know, this easily, I don't want to cast aspersions, but that looks sketchy. (laughs) That looks like, um, they're on something and they're getting called out for it internally. And the UCI is putting them in timeout basically for a few years, but. Um, even even if everything's above board it tells you that something's not quite right at that team like how how could you have a performance that good Uh, means you're clearly a world-class rider at least physically and then you just can't ever reproduce that performance Um, very strange the team does not win very often when they win it's usually huge Um, but they're not good at replicating neither them nor their riders are good at replicating those performances and and that's what's important here it's not whether they're doping or not Um, we can't know that unless there's prove, but what we can know is they're very inconsistent. So, um, just an asterisk to put next to that performance where, you know, note it, but don't expect this guy to like be winning the tour of Flanders for the next 10 years. Speaking of tour of Flanders this weekend, it, this weekend has an insane number of races. I just outlined a few in the newsletter I just sent out and it was like, it was way too many. I don't know who can watch all this. Um, Benji Nassen, and that's about it. But the UA, UA tour wraps up tomorrow, Saturday with an uphill finish. Um actually could be pretty interesting. And you only have to tune in for like the last 30 minutes of the race. That's the beautiful thing about the UA tour. Uh Primus roglic is starting his season at two races I'm gonna put my hand up had never heard of. The fon Ardèche Classic and the Drome Classic. I maybe I've watched these races. I have no recollection of ever seeing these races. I assume they're in southern France or somewhere in France. They they must be warm. That must be why he's chosen this. But Julian Alaflippe and Guillaume Martin are both at these one-day races could be pretty interesting um would would recommend and that's a funny thing we've seen so far this year where the ua tour is the first world tour race of the season it's been boring like straight up boring like i would not recommend that anyone watch it but these small french races have been very interesting i and in, in spanish races too like um etoie de passage and, and tour de la provence tour des alps last weekend i mean all of these have just been so so such good racing like um it's just so active it seems like everything's getting overturned all the time um, we saw that at the uh at andalusia where that you know there's no time tri- there tends to be no time trial there's short stages with no time trial so all the time has to be taken on the on the road it's all live racing algarve is a great example of like the opposite of that where there's like a 32 kilometer time trial that that's like a time trial that needs to be in a grand tour not in a five-day four-day race it completely neutralized the rest of the race so so, so I expect that that pair of one-day races to be pretty interesting. This so is the Gran Camino race. It's a four-day stage race in, in Spain. Not sure I've ever seen this one either. But Mike Woods today put out a in truly insane performance to win stage two. He did almost 500 watts for seven minutes, which, at his weight, is is wild. I mean, for any weight, that's wild. But that's almost eight eight watts per kilo. You know, which isn't that's not like. Impossible for that amount of time, but that's impressive. Um, dropped Valverde by quite a bit of time, by 16 seconds, which is perfect because we have a mountain stage left and a 16k time trial. So Mike Woods has never won a GC race in his life, like a stage race in his life, because he's just not a skilled racer out on the road. But this is like the perfect amount of time he might be able to hold off Valverde, who's like the ultimate racer. So um, I might be paying attention to those races too. I mean, that, that's that's kind of an interesting little uh situation we have there but the big boys the omni het newsblad and the kern bussels kern this is the real start of the classic season this is this is it this is serious this is uh, a omloop on saturday kern brussels kern on sunday um traditionally these have been like the start of the season before uh the real season before like the ua tour existed everyone used to race both that happens less and less now <laughs> Omloop tends to be the more prestigious race, and Kern Brussels Kern is if you screw up and and don't do well at Omloop, you get sent to that race the next day. But they're they're both really interesting races, and Kern Brussels Kern has gotten better in recent years. It has these circuits around Kern where you know it used to be a sprinter's classic, and you kind of knew it was going to come down to a bunch sprint. But there's been a lot of interesting kind of pursuit finishes where you have a single rider outsmarting and outpacing the chasing peloton in the final few laps. I've really enjoyed it the last few years. Both of these are great races. I would highly recommend watching them. There's a lot of big stars here. We got Wout Walt, like Walt Van Aert, Sonny Cabrelli, Matty Motorich, Jasper Steuben, Casper Askren, Tom Pidcock, Yves Lampere, Christoph Laporte, Tim Merlier, Fabio Jakobsen, who I'm actually really curious to see how he does. I think he could do really well at both of these races. But something to keep in mind here is no riders ever won Omloop and flanders in the same year and even though it's a lot of the course it's similar a lot of it is actually exactly the same um it's really fun because you get to see i mean the flanders course is so cool it's like so beautiful and these these great steep cobble climbs but it's just too hard to say to stay fit for the five weeks between yeah it's about five weeks between omloop and flanders So you it's tricky. You want to be good at these races, but you don't want to be that good. Like the riders who are winning it, you can almost cross them off and and know that they're not going to win later in the spring classic season. So um really interesting race to watch. Really terrible race to try to predict. I also believe Peter Sagan's here. I'm really curious to see how he does. Um he doesn't seem I don't know. I'm not I'm not getting great vibes from from his tenure so far at Total Energies. He had COVID again. Um, I'd be shocked if he's, he's not looked good so far. Um, he, he normally shows something at these races. I mean, there was a lot of years where he's like basically still riding himself into fitness and like getting on the podium at them. I, I, I think those days are, are done. Uh, I do not think that's going to happen this weekend, but I could be wrong. And on the note of Fabio Jakobsen, he's been unbelievable this year so far in sprints. And that kind of takes us into the last thing I want to talk about before I send us all off onto our weekend of watching racing is the, the delicious little drama going on at quick step. Um, The team principal, Patrick Lefebvre said at the very end of last year that they're bringing Fabio Jacobs into the tour de France. Sorry, Mark Cavendish. It's not happening. Um, I thought I I wrote at the time that this is a little odd. Like, why would you announce this right now? Um, It's it's just like, what, why, um, why? Like, what's the advantage? Like, you don't know who's going to be good at the tour de France. You know, maybe helps them because it like they're not getting to ask the question over and over again. But I surmise that Cavendish still had a path to the tour if he just he just had to keep performing really well, um, be undeniably good, hope Jakobsen bobbles, and you know, there's maybe a chance he can start the tour. Sure enough, he starts off the season very good. Um, he won the second stage of the UA tour, and I thought it was. I thought it was his most impressive win of the season for sure. Um, one of his most impressive wins from the past few years. He looked incredible. And after that win, Patrick Lefebvre, the team manager, starts saying, well, maybe we will take him to the Tour de France. You know, nobody knows. Who knows? And kind of set up this, this really interesting sprinter, um, sprinter controversy for Jakobsen versus Cavendish. The only thing, two things though, are not good for Cavendish here. One is Fabio Jakobsen. As good as Cavendish has looked, Fabio Jakobsen has looked better. I mean, he has been destroying people in sprint finishes all year. Like, I, he, he was good last year at the Volta. He's significantly better already this year. Um, he's come back from that, from that injury that put him into a coma at the Tour of Poland. Impressive, Impressively fast, impressively strong. Um, so I'm, I'm very curious to see how he does at, at both Omloop and Kern-Brussels-Kern. I wouldn't be shocked if he wins at least one of those races. But Cavendish got a concussion. I, I believe it was stage four of the UA Tour. He gets a concussion, and he just kept racing. I think he was still in the race to try for the bunch finish sprint today. Um, disappointing, obviously, because it doesn't even, um, it's not even a bunch sprint. His team didn't work particularly hard to pull it back. So I'm, I'm just not quite sure what was going on. Maybe you just thought I'll get some fitness in the sun. But, you know, I could, um, I can understand having that thought. I can't understand being someone who's uh, like managing a writer and allows that to happen. I mean, if you have a concussion, you've got to stop writing. Like you can't have him cruising around in a Peloton. A, that's dangerous. He could get it, hit his head again. And B, that's really bad for your brain to be working out that hard while you have a concussion, while you're recovering from it. So um, that's a trick. It's a really tricky thing to come back from. Um, not many sprinters get head injuries like that and can, and can come back quickly. So, um, I'm a little worried. That's potentially it's, it hasn't been covered that much. I feel like it just kind of like slipped by the news, but yeah, that's not good. Riding with the concussion racing with the, I don't know, maybe it was something was lost in translation, but even if it wasn't a con- confirmed concussion, just a head injury, they needed it to pull him out of that race ASAP. Um, I, I just, I I worry about his recovery coming back from this. I think this could maybe put a little bit of a damper on him potentially going to the Tour de France and trying to take the record for the most stage wins at that race. But that's it for this week. Next week, I'm supposed to have a very special guest. I hope I can share that with you next week. So have a great weekend. Enjoy the racing. And if you can't catch it, don't worry. Just subscribe to the newsletter at beyondthepelton.substack.com. All right. Bye.